it, it's kind of like, am I going to make a mistake or not? You're, you, you have to just put paint on there and go with it. I may find myself pro procrastinating. That's how I know that's the reason I like it, because when I get out of that procrastination phase, just put paint on a canvas, which sometimes I have to do just to get out of it. You find yourself then going into that question and answer phase. Well, why did I put this red here? What am I gonna do with this red? So just throw another color on there. Now those two colors mix, throw a chemical on there. Now there's a chemical on, that's doing something. That's gelling those colors together. And then you just like, what do I like about this? What do I dislike about it? What would I add to it that might make me feel a little better? That is how today's guest describes his workflow a process that I find completely applicable to so many aspects of life in general. And this is Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro, where we talk about how to get ready to live a more purposeful and empowered life. This week, I'd like to introduce you to a real live artist, one who doesn't use ChatGPT or AI tools to create his work. Nope, he uses his hands and sometimes a little acetate. His name is David Molinaro. And as you can probably tell, yeah, we're related. David is, in fact, my brother-in-law. Aha, you might be saying, makes total sense. These Molinaro kids got the lion's share when God was doling out talents. And you might be onto something. But what I soon discovered after talking with David for, I don't know, like 60 seconds, is that there is a great deal of truth in the phrase, art imitates life. I challenge all of you to listen to just even the first 10 minutes and not find at least 10 different ways that David's discussion of his process is the exact same process by which all of us should endeavor to approach life's challenges, starting a business building a fitness routine, even building a better relationship. Today's discussion, it covers a lot of ground. David takes us through his artistic process from vision to execution, but also chats about how he decided to pursue art at all, something I personally find endlessly fascinating, having pursued a very not artistic career. But perhaps the most interesting part about our conversation is what doesn't get said what David intentionally leaves on the table, recognizing that some things, they can't be brought to life through words and therefore they're better left unsaid. I'm curious to hear whether you all pick up on that as much as I did while talking with him and what impact that has on you. Also, for those of you who are just listening, which makes up the vast majority of you, I especially encourage you to check out the video version on YouTube so that you can actually see some of the extraordinary, and I truly mean extraordinary, artwork that David describes. Because in this case, a picture is definitely worth a thousand words. We will include timestamps in that video so that you can zero in on the pieces we talk about in our discussion. Otherwise, without further ado, let's get into it. Thank you so much for letting us crash your beautiful studio. Awesome. Great to have you here. Yeah, it is really 
extraordinary looking in here. I know for people who are just listening, you can't see, although we'll be including some footage of your studio, but I can see why you spend so much time here. On top of the fact that it takes you several hours to do just the work that you do. Yeah, and weeks. <laughs> yeah, you had mentioned when you gave us a tour of this place that just one commission can take anywhere from two to three months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. eight to 12 weeks with some, uh, gives me some cushion time. If I were to go straight out, probably not that long, but. So I wanted to ask you, what is your favorite thing about being an artist? Oh, man, that's a great question. <laughs> the fact that you're making something from nothing is probably the most joy you get out of it. Then when you see other people react to it, um, that really just is kind of the icing on the cake. Mm. I'm sure there's more things I can come up with. The other thing is just when you're doing it, just very, it's just a very cool feeling. Mm. And when you say when you're doing it, what is your main medium, if you will? My main medium that brings me income is oil painting. It's actually one of my favorite mediums. It's, it's kind of the most complicated, I think. I, I mean, that you, could, you can argue that watercolors is kind of up there too. There's very similar personalities in how you can handle the medium from the substrate you use, how much water you use in terms of watercolors. But oil paints are very similar in that way. You can, you can go straight up realistic with them, or you can, you can beat them up however you want, manipulate them. They have a mind of their own, so you have to just kind of learn where, where it's going. And you gotta go, you gotta go with them kind of mm. thing. And that's what I like about them. Similar to like wine, you know, the wine, uh, an aged wine is not the same. 20 years earlier than it is later, it kind of has a mind of its own through its process. Oils are very similar that way. You mentioned that one of the other things that you love so much about being an artist is the feeling that you get when you're creating something, like you said, from nothing to something. Can you describe a little bit what that feeling is like? That feeling is when you start something and if, if even if it exists, we'll take this, the flag for example, when you, when you start painting that, it, it's something that everybody already can relate to. But when I start painting and putting layer on the layer, it just starts to become my own. My personality is coming out, out of there. And I think that's what I enjoy the most. Now, it doesn't even have to be a flag. When I do something completely abstract, that same personality is coming out. You can take something completely abstract and something that people can identify with and they're going to see probably my personality. They'll see the similarities in what I'm talking about. And I like that. But that, that happens during the process. I can't just say to you, I do this and I do that. The part that kind of feels really cool is when you're doing it. And there's like a question and answer phase almost while you're in that process. So you have to be in the process to even get to that. And it, it's kind of like, am I going to make a mistake or not? You're, you, you have to just put paint on there and go with it. And that's what's super cool about it. It's exciting, but also to me, <laughs> as the risk-averse person, it sounds terrifying. Well, you know, it can be a little, it can, well, it can be a little terrifying. And often I may find myself pro procrastinating. That's how I know that's the reason I like it. Because when I get out of that procrastination phase and just, just put paint on a canvas, which sometimes I have to do just to get out of it, you find yourself then going into that question and answer phase. Well, why did I put this red here? What am I gonna do with this red? So just throw another color on there. Now those two colors mix, 
throw a chemical on there. Now there's a chemical on that's doing something, that's gelling those colors together. And then you just like, what do I like about this? What do I dislike about it? What would I add to it that might make me feel a little better? And that's just all part of uh, the process, but you have to get into, you have to start really to kind of get that cool feeling that I, that I enjoy. I think that's the hardest part though for a lot of people, whether it's in art or some other creative or even non-creative endeavor is just starting. Yeah, for sure. But when you do, I mean, and again, you may get to a point, like even if you do start, you may get somewhere where you're like, I don't like it. So then you let it dry and, and it could sit I've had some sit in my studios for, for years. And then I go back to them. I either cover them up with something else or I add. Or I may see something that I liked. And it, I'm like, oh, that reminds me of that piece I started a while ago. And I'll go back to it. Now, on stuff that's where, where there's deadlines, you know, well, then you have to start. <laughs> <laughs> you have to start and you have to get yourself into that process. And the more you do it, obviously, the more you know what's going to happen and the, maybe the more you realize what, what you're going to make. On some of the complete abstract pieces, which I get some of the most joy out of because that's just something I'm going to m- make from my own own brain. But even the, on the stuff that people may ask me, hey, I really like this one piece. Can you do it in, in this color? I pretty much then know what, what's going to happen and how I'm, how I'm going to approach it. But there's no question just starting is a can be a pretty daunting task, even for somebody who does it almost every day, for sure. I feel like it's such a great, I, I always say this, but running is such a great analogy for everything. But I feel like just like what you said, even for someone who runs every day, sometimes the hardest part of every single run is just stepping out the door. For sure. No, <laughs> no doubt about that. When you take X amount of time off from running, it is going out, the, out of the door. Or any, any exercise metaphor works in this scenario. The gym, if I take X amount of time, sometimes just going to the gym, that's the workout. And then I actually have put a five-minute rule like in my head when, when I get locked up in situations like that. And that may apply to painting. However, getting prepped for painting takes, takes a while. But in terms of like exercise, I'm just going to go and do five minutes. And then I end up finding out that I'm going to do 20 or 30 or 40. Painting is like just if I just squeeze a tube of paint to one of those trials, well, I'm not going to leave it there. So I better find somewhere to put it at. And then I find myself half an hour, hour, a couple hours later, maybe just playing around. So for sure, there's a lot of analogies that can be applied to exercise and painting is no different. (laughs) (laughs) So now I have to ask you the flip question. What is your least favorite thing about being an artist? Deadlines, for sure. (laughs) But, But without them, sometimes I wouldn't get to that starting phase. That seems obvious, deadlines. Sometimes when I'm just the paint's not reacting the way I want it to, or I want it to get somewhere quicker. That's probably what I don't like. And then when, it, when it's not going somewhere as fast as I'd like it to be, and there's deadlines, then you're like, oh, come on. But actually another bad thing about it is that you have a vision in your brain, and it, I know I'll get there if it takes longer to mm-hmm. get there. Or when you, when you first start, you're like, oh, yeah, I had this thought. And it, and it didn't come out that way. And you, you spent two, three, four hours and you're like, oh, what am I going to do now? So sometimes you have to, you know, walk away and come back the next day. And again, I usually find then it comes out even a little better because you've now added a layer 
of something that you didn't really like yesterday, but tomorrow or the next day, you then went on top of that, worked with what you didn't like yesterday, and then you end up liking today. Mm. Now, it doesn't necessarily happen overnight all the time. It could be, th- it could be a week later, but then you could see that un- underlying structure of where you're maybe struggling, and you're like, yeah, actually, that, that worked out. Mm. And th- that ends up then going back to that process. You have to just kind of get in there, and you have to go with those ups and downs because you're going to have them. Have you ever gotten to a point where you've been working not even just for a couple hours, but for a couple of days and you wake up in the morning and you see how it's turned out and you're like, oh no, this is all sorts of wrong. I'm going to have to start from scratch. (laughs) I rarely start from scratch with oil paintings. I just figure I'm going to give it a couple days, maybe let everything dry. And I could always just kind of go over things, but there's no, no, no doubt. I, I probably go through that phase. Never where I've just dumped something. I, I usually just stop and just give it a rest. But I've, I've never just, maybe on like smaller illustrations, it's easier to do that. But on the, on the oil paintings, I just feel like you got you to gotta keep on going. Muscle through it. Yeah, because what I end up happening, if it's not for someone and it's just for me, there's not always a direct vision to the finish line. So it's one of those things is like, just jump back in and see what you make today out of what you didn't like last week or yesterday kind of thing and, and see what you come up with. And if you keep on going, usually you, you start landing on little things that you like, start to kind of create themselves, and then you run with that direction. For painting, I, I think that's probably the best way to go. Mm. Now, maybe if you're doing a realistic you know, portrait that might be a little different because you're like, oh, but this doesn't really look, look like, like- <laughs> you, But if you're doing it for yourself, then that's just called practice. So keep on practicing. As I said, David's philosophy on art is truly a masterclass on life. And in life, they often say that practice makes perfect. But as I'm sure we've all discovered, this aphorism doesn't always hold true. Sometimes practice and more practice and even more practice doesn't always pan out the way we envisioned. And sometimes our vision for ourselves becomes more stressful than anything the world could demand from us. So I asked David how he handles the pressure of his own vision, how he manages his own expectations from himself by using one of his most popular paintings as an example. This painting, it's the one of his Aunt Menica mowing the lawn while wearing a picture-perfect Sunday frock and heels. We'll include links to the video so you can see this beautiful, beautiful painting. I was surprised to hear how much he initially struggled with this piece, which goes to show that a flawless end result might not always reveal just how many iterations it took to get there. Well, that's the other thing is I've seen now evidence of of how much practice you put into a given piece. For example, that beautiful one of your Ziamenica, and you were trying to create a very specific effect with the acrylic lines, and you showed us earlier here, I practiced here, I practiced here. This one didn't turn out, you know, the way I wanted it, but I ended up keeping it because I really liked the effect that it ultimately produced. But what I find so incredible is for me, the first time I tried it, if it didn't come out exactly the way that I had in my mind, there's a probably a 50% chance that I would just say, 
I'm, I'm just, I'm quitting. I don't want to do this anymore. I got to figure out something else or this vision is not achievable. I can't do it. I have to scrap this all together and just find some other way of doing it. But it sounds to me that whether it's just trusting the process, trusting yourself or having done this so many times, you're actually okay with I mean, it sounds like several iterations before you achieve your vision. I am. And, but that one, yeah, that one I was really nervous about because I did have, I did have a direct vision. I, I was going through a process, and then my vision kind of created itself. And then I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to make. Now, because it involved a process that I was, I was, I was, I was at 60% sure that it was going to go through, I needed to get myself to 90. I never really got close to 100. I got, I, got, I got to the point where it was like, okay, this is the time to do it. And there was a lot of pacing, right? There was a lot of that procrastination mm-hmm. pacing going up and down the hallway of when am I going to transfer the image onto the canvas? Because I, I already spent time painting the canvas, the background color that I wanted to achieve. Now, of course, I could have I done it again, but I really didn't want to. So yes, there was... X amount of iterations, probably 20 times doing doing the transfer. And when the last five came out clear or the way I wanted it to come out, right, I then just said, okay, this is the time and just went at it. And uh, I knew right away that it was kind of working out. Yeah, thank God that one one came out. That's a perfect scenario where I was pretty nervous because I did have that direct vision. And that's not like an oil painting that the, where the drips of paint are part of, of my style and I could just paint over it. On that one, it was a very clean craft, right? There was a background, then a foreground. That needed to be clean. So there was no room for error. There was no room for error on that one, which is why I cherish it so much and the fact that it happens to be such an awesome image of my aunt. And now I've you know, put her in a legacy image and it's very pop culture even, you know, so beautiful. It's definitely one of my favorite pieces, but 20 iterations, let's, let's assume that it it is in fact 20. Would you consider versions one through 19 failures then? No, because in fact, uh, the light bulb went off on number one, where I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is fucking cool. And maybe even two, it was like on, on number three or four where the, where it wasn't coming out completely clear. And, and then even on five and six, wasn't as, as clear. I was getting bubbles into the transfer, and I didn't want that. So, yeah, so uh, then I would take small versions of it and stack, stack her up, right? So there would be like three of her, and then I would just cut each one separately and have a larger canvas and just try each one. And then it, it was like the last five, I think, were coming out clean. I had the kind of paper I was using, the the printer that I was using to make the, make the transfer, the sink and water was all ready to go. So I knew that was going to be it. And if it didn't work out, then I probably would have taken a, a, a week or so or two, two weeks off and just went back at it again because mm-hmm. I knew I wanted to make this piece. <laughs> so, And it sounds like you were learning how not to do it with every single version. I mean, it sounds like versions one and two might have been the inspiration, but by three, four, five, and certainly by 17 and 18, you're like, all right, well, this is not exactly what I want, so I need to tweak this here, you know, learn from whatever I did here in order to achieve what I think is the perfect result. 
Yeah, for sure. And not a lot of people will understand what I'm talking about when I talk about these transfers, but paper ended up being a big part of it. So I was using certain photographic papers. So I needed, once I found the one that was where I could put the film on that paper and then soak that paper in the water and then that film would just kind of slide off, then I had found my process. And that sliding off, the film sliding off, you kind of talked about this while you were showing us some of your other work. I mean, that was a methodology that you developed like several years ago, it sounds like, with an earlier project, correct? Yeah, for yeah, for the MTV Real World, that wasn't a glossy paper. In fact, that was a really matte, toothy finish. And that's why it took hours to scrub the paper off. Mm. And that's when I realized I'm not doing that again. So, <laughs> uh, I think I did try the piece with my aunt once on, on that, and then I, then I switched over to photographic paper. But then I, again, switched over to cheaper photographic paper because the, the expensive photographic paper has a coating on it, and that didn't want to take the ink mm. off because the ink gets so trapped into the paper. So when I went to the inkjet print paper, photo paper, right, then I found when I put that in water, the film just kind of peeled Right, right off. off. Beautifully. Yeah. So when you're going through all of these, what I call experiments, like even all the way back to the real world film project, right? Where you were sloughing it off in the shower, it sounds like, for hours, all the way to finding this, you know, less expensive paper that allows the film to simply slide off in a very convenient way. Are you filing all of this information away in your head for perhaps future reference? Like, hmm, this is what happened in version 13. I don't need this for now, but maybe at a future project or a future piece, this particular reaction that I'm getting might become useful? Certainly at that time. But here's the thing. I made those pieces quite a while ago, and now these papers are pretty, even the cheap papers are really good papers. Ah. So I would have to go through it again. Not as, I don't, it would, I would. Damn I, technology. <laughs> yeah, I, I, not, it would, certainly wouldn't be as intense. I remember I recreated her in a smaller version, and I kind of had to go through it, but I did find some cheap photographic paper. The, the thing is, the, the paper and the printers are getting better with the archival links and everything. So uh, I would I would have to go through. I, I definitely would practice again. I wouldn't just say, hey, this is going to be a final. Mm. But that's fine. That's that, that's fine. Some of those practice pieces are pieces of art in their own right. Absolutely. So. I think they're beautiful. The ones that you've sent. I mean, every iteration I've seen of that piece with the Amenica. It's a uniquely beautiful piece of art. However much we can agree that art mirrors life and life mirrors art, I definitely believe that not all of us are cut out to be actual artists. Both my husband and his brother David are real-life artists. They've spent most of their lives answering first to a creative calling, and more importantly, they have both the talent and the technical expertise to answer that calling in extraordinary ways. Me, despite drilling through Suzuki books for years, yeah, I could never play the piano the way Anthony could. But being an artist these days is not just about being good at it. Indeed, as in all walks of life, from lawyers to painters, skill alone won't guarantee a roof over your head or the means to continue doing what you want to do. That said, there's a reason I chose law over creative writing when I graduated college. 
and I was super curious to hear why David decided to go in a slightly different direction. I actually wanted to talk a little bit about your decision to become an artist. You talk about sort of what I view as a confidence developing and also heavily confidence reliant process of just the creation of art. I was not joking when I said it sounds terrifying to just trust that, oh, well, somewhere along the line, it'll turn into what I want it to turn into. I completely understand that that takes just years of doing this over and over. I mean, iteration upon iteration to know exactly how the paint is going to dry or what the color is actually going to look like, what layering film over it will, you know, what that process entails. But the reason it's so fascinating to me is because my own background is the exact opposite of yours. I, you know, was put on a path and I was told, hey, there are milestones at every single path. Here's the finish line. You got mile markers every single mile along the way. And it's best for you if you just stay on that path. Then you'll finish with a lovely 401k, a retirement plan. You'll have you know, predictable paychecks all along the way. And that's why I chose law. That's very much why I chose law, because I didn't want to have to question anything. I didn't want to have any uncertainty. But you, in my view, did something very much akin to what you described the artistic process of, you know, when you're putting a painting together. Not always sure how it's going to end, but part of what gives you joy, it sounds to me, is that uncertainty. Yeah, sir, the experimental just experimenting in general is something I'm interested in. That didn't come immediate. Uh, it wasn't like in high school, uh, in art class, that I was constantly experimenting. It was probably more in college because I was also on top of being in visual communication design, which is graphic design. I was a double major for a short time with illustration. And it wasn't until that illustration focused on watercolors. And it, although I was a realist, I learned how to do watercolors proper and if you were to just do washes of watercolors, they have they kind of create their own art. So if you wanted to do something abstract with watercolors, you could. So I was interested in that, but I wasn't totally interested at the time. It wasn't until I got out of college where I started really experimenting with but what made you want to go into art altogether? I mean, it's certainly not like, hey, a safe, in my view, a safe job, like a lawyer or accountant or a doctor. My parents would not have been okay if I was like, hey, guys, I'm going to start painting for a career. But look what you've created. I mean, it's beautiful. Yeah. Well, growing up, my parents put uh, my brother and I through, they kept us involved with a number of activities for my brother. Well, for me and my brother at the time, it was piano. I just retired at the age of six and he kept on going. <laughs> <laughs> but then I got into drums. They just, they kept us involved. But while we were growing up, I remember distinctly watching my mother draw all the time. She was going to she was going to a community college. Part of that part of that was her drafting and drawing. And now that I think about it, even her father was just an expert craftsman. Not necessarily a, a person who draws, but he was just, he was an expert craftsman. Uh, would build his own home. And my gra grandmother would be sculpting faces out of apples and turning them into Christmas tree ornaments. And so I kind of grew up watching my family create these things and always just be crafty. Then in high school, I found that I, did, I wasn't much of a student. It wasn't until, you know... A student in the traditional sense. Yeah, academic-wise, mm -hmm. for sure. So 
the art classes could just kept me involved to the point by I think uh, junior and senior year I was I, I think I had three or four art classes a day that was a good chunk of my day and then the rest would be algebra chemistry and what so forth but I found myself being in the art class most of the time that was my dominant thing so you know when it when it came to going to college I ended up looking at like Columbus School of Art and Design. I knew I wanted to look into art. I didn't know what was going to happen with that. So I remember going to Columbus School of Art and Design and looking at that, the Art Institute of Chicago. But at the time, we had moved from the south suburbs of Illinois, south suburbs of Chicago, to Ohio. And one of the campuses there was Kent State University. So that was one of, because that was a state school. That was one of the schools we visited. And the first thing that I saw when we walked into their art campus was this guy. And I think this was summertime. So th- there was a few people in there for summer school. It was a guy on a computer with these cool graphics on there. And his first, it, was the first, it was the first time I saw like these really cool graphics. I mean, this was like right when the Macintosh came. Mm-hmm. We, we owned a, a PC and never even seen an Apple computer yet. And I saw this whole lab of them, and one guy was on there, and I was like, that's pretty cool. And then when I walked around the, when I kept on walking through that art campus, I saw a big easel with these canvases on them, and I saw a guy who was painting. I'm like, this is pretty cool. It was, it was, I liked it more than, say, Columbus School of Art and Design felt a little stodgy to me. I didn't really see anyone working. So I, I actually, I, actually didn't necessarily get into art per se. I just, I got into visual communication design because I loved, I just loved what I saw. That was like, that's where I wanted to, that's what I wanted to do. And that's more of the graphic design. That's more of the graphic Mm -hmm. design. And now because I was such an, because I loved illustration in high school, I, I took illustration up as a double major, but not painting, not fine art, none of that. That didn't come until later. So in the illustration, you know, there would be editorial projects, there would be some on, you know, make it up on your own, there'd be portraitures. And I was still pretty much a a, a realist then. It wasn't until then after college, you know, I was working as a graphic designer and I told you I'd do those pen and inks, what I can do in a half an hour. So at the time you were a graphic designer, I just want to make sure that we're kind of on the same page here. It it doesn't sound like you were taking commission work. Were you working for a company or? Yeah, yeah. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I was working for an advertising agency as an art director slash graphic designer. They kind of, they cross over. So it's an artistic, but still corporate job. Yeah, very corporate job. Yeah, you get your four hundred one k, you get your you get your salary. <laughs> so it sounds you, a lot like yeah. yeah. You, you get all the goodies. The every, straight path. <laughs> everybody's happy. The parents are happy. And then when that company gets bought out and you're on your own, I meet up with the guy who starts using me as a freelance work. That was the equity office, and that company ended up using me, and they still use me to today on all kinds of projects that were non-traditional, from graphic design that, that involved handwork later on once they found out I was an artist to, to paintings or uh, an artist. Fine uh, artist, yeah. Yeah, fine artist, because I still consider graphic design an art uh, to a certain, certain degree. So uh, all of their projects really put a lot of inspiration and exploration in the graphic design department, as well as a lot of hand stuff that turned into fine art. 
That also then turned into printmaking, which I also consider fine art. And then years into that, through that client, I met a restaurateur who I was doing all the design work, the, you know, the, the logos and the signage uh, for the restaurants uh-huh. and the menus. And he, had, he was hiring a lot of artists to put artwork up in the restaurants. And I was, I was into that. And I told him that. And so on one of the restaurants, I was doing all of the design work for it. And then he had asked me to come on down. He's like, I have a 20 foot, 21 foot frame. Can you fill it? Wow. Yeah, that, that Challenge was, accepted. Yeah, that was, <laughs> and I, I just said, yeah, 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 of course. But at that time, had you made a pretty sizable shift from graphic design to being a, a, more of a painter and a Yeah, I guess artist? I should uh, preface that with saying I did do a restaurant with a bunch of smaller canvases for him about 20 of them. So I had been comfortable painting with oils. But never one of that size. No, never one that size. That's when I started to go into scale. And that kind of changed a lot because I I had to stretch the canvas myself. Now, luckily, I was able to use his carpenters. But I remember seeing that empty frame. Not being scared, but excited? Well, no, I was scared too. (laughs) I, I, I wanted that job. And after that, I was like, well, man, I, I can do anything after that one. That is amazing. And then I also realized I don't want to stretch my own canvases either, <laughs> even, though, even though I had to for years after that. But then once I found somebody who can do that for me far better, I was like, here you go. And, th- and then from there on, it was just kind of, there was a few more large ones. And then I got, I got recognized for that because they were in public places. And quite frankly, I had to paint them in those locations because they were so big. So literally people could see you painting in a restaurant. Yeah, yeah. In fact, it, it would be yep, the... Not while they're eating, hopefully. <laughs> no, 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 no. And that one, I, that one I was still painting while the restaurant was open. I was painting in the, the upper banquet room while the bottom part was, was open. But months before that, it was certainly the, the wait staff and everybody building the restaurant was there to see the yeah yeah to see the process and that ended up happening on quite a few other locations that's incredible david glosses over something that to me would have been a pretty big deal losing his job when his company got bought out by a larger company however much we like to believe that once we're in we're in for life or until retirement it goes to show that nothing is guaranteed in life However, it turns out that, at least in David's case, it was less about being the collateral damage in an M&A and maybe more about being, well, too David. I actually wanted to go back to something you seem to gloss over, which I think is a pretty pivotal moment, was when, I guess, the company that you worked for as a graphic designer right out of college, that company was bought out or it was acquired? Yeah, so the first company was bought out. Well... Yeah, they they were bought out, and there was there was a disagreement. I think with with both of those parent companies, they ended up a lot letting a lot of people go. I got fired because I did not like the politics of the <laughs> new company. Uh-huh. Uh, there was a lot, and that happens. But you know, I was actually, I was I was a little young because that was my job. I had been there for three years, but I was young, and I was like, oh man, I just got fired, and I didn't realize. You know, that's kind of what happens when. It happens sometimes, doesn't happen all the time. I could have maybe fell in line, but I didn't need to do any design labels for Gerber baby food. Um, <laughs> for 
the rest of your life. Yeah. But I mean, what made you decide at that point? Because I think, again, this is where David would go in one direction and Joanne would go in the other. If that happened to me, I would say, okay, well, what's my next corporate gig? What's the next other company where I would be happy to make Gerber labels if it meant that I would have a steady paycheck? How is it that you decided, yeah, actually, you know what? I'm going to work with this company for some freelance work. I'm going to work with this restaurateur to do, you know, to fill 21 foot, you know, frames that I've never even seen before and stretch my own canvas and, and work while people are eating downstairs. Yeah. Yeah. So I was probably pretty cocky. Then. <laughs> it was definitely a confidence level. At the same time, I, I was before that, I'll just try to back up real quick. Before that, I was hired full-time freelance out of college mm. with a company called DDB Needham. Big advertising agency, now in the Aon building, was the BP building back then. They actually moved me here from, from college and found a place for me. So I got used to being an art director in, in the corporate environment. That was full-time freelance. People would put in your head, you know, layoffs were coming, and, and I passed a few of those off. But it was expected, especially for freelancers, when the company would lose a big client. And then my time was up after two years, but I got a lot of experience with them. And they also then hired me again in the future. Then I went to my first full-time job and I was there for three years where they ended up getting bought out and we just had a disagreement on how things were going to be handled. But part of the reason I was getting really tired when they got bought out, they were bringing in motivational speakers to like talk about how to be profitable and we're having these meetings like every day on how to be profitable. And I was like, I just want to create stuff for our clients to be profitable. And I remember that motivational speaker going around the room and asking everybody, are you a happy face, a frowny face, a, a this face? And I was just like, this is so, I can't take this anymore. <laughs> it's he, torture. Yeah, and, he, and he talked about, uh, so... <laughs> Here's the kicker. And it's, it's so he talked about not being a quitter and all of that. And I'm totally fine with that, except I, I caught him smoking downstairs outside of the lobby. And then he was trying to tell people in the room about quitting smoking. And I called him out on that. And that's probably the reason I got called into human resources the following Friday. And <laughs> <laughs> so we got the popcorn gallery. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 well, I couldn't, I really couldn't take it. I mean, these meetings were going on for almost a year. And so I'll get, just give you, give you some context there. What, and I was just like, oh, okay, you know. And then you'd have to make little videos with your teams. They put you in little teams. And I'm like, I have clients to make work for. So I was, I, I was really just getting exhausted of that. On top of, I knew a lot of people in the industry don't get me wrong. When they, I wasn't. Ex, I think even right before I got laid off, I was like, "They're like, we need to talk to you." I go, "Oh, is it? Fine, I'm finally getting that raise, kind of thing." <laughs> so, yeah. So I, I, I got let go, and yeah, certainly you have that pit in your stomach for for yeah. a while. And but I, I knew a lot of successful people. So once I just started reaching out, then again, the really good guy and mentor ended up turning into be a mentor who worked for equity equity group investments his name was peter solozzi started using me on small projects and those small projects became bigger projects and then those big project projects became huge consistent projects year after year after year 
and I was with them for a very long time. And it was through that guy that I met the restaurant tour. That that guy that I mentioned said, "Oh, well, this this guy's mm. my he's a guy I use for a lot of my design stuff. Uh, you should use him." And then that's how I got introduced to the restaurant tour, where I would be doing all the signage and menus and logos, and then that turned into fine art and then the graphic side of it kind of mixed in with each other and then there was just kind of a mutual respect for each other and liking of you know what could be made or what could we do with this place what would we put in here and I was I was pretty yeah I'd get really excited about that I would get bored easy doing the everyday corporate stuff but I wasn't bored with what could we make today mm, kind of thing. That's incredible. And then when you see it uh, like in a finished room, you're like, wow. You know? What was it like when you saw the finished product, you know, that huge, you know, 21 footer or whatever that the restaurant tour commissioned and said, hey, can you fill this frame? Yeah, that's an incredible experience. And to see it in a finished room is one. A to be done is, is, is one feeling. You're like, oh, okay, I'm done with it. Then you go home and you're like, Okay, I did this. I did this piece, but then you walk into the room, and especially when the room is just bustling with people, just mm. dining, enjoying, enjoying life, and your your artwork is the big backdrop of this environment. Yeah, it's incredibly rewarding. Is it still in that restaurant today? It what is? Yeah, what that's, is it? Uh, that, that rent restaurant is Carnival. Oh, we love uh, that restaurant. Yeah, I think it's 702. <laughs> so for those of you who are in Chicago, whether you're visiting or you're here, go to Carnival, first of all, try and find something to eat. There are plenty of vegan options. We've been there. And look for this huge piece. Can you maybe describe like what it looks like in case people don't have a chance to watch the video? Yeah, so this piece is an explosion of flowers and fireworks and just a colors, a lot of layers of colors. It really is just inspired by the design of the restaurant. I'm not sure I would have sat at home and made that particular piece because I was painting that piece in that restaurant oh, while the restaurant such a good was point. Being, yeah. being built. And there's these florets on all the sconces of the lamps that I was trying to play off of. And it just kind of created itself. That's beautiful. It sounds to me when you decided, hey, I'm going to stick with this freelance thing, whether it's because you knew you would continue to get bored or tortured, if you will, at the corporate gig, or simply because you were so inspired by the work that you were doing with your mentor, with the restaurateur and future clients, and being able to create you know, something out of nothing, as you had said earlier. To me, it sounds a lot like entrepreneurship. It sounds like you're basically starting your own business of one, right? That's just you in this situation. And one of the things that I've learned from my very small little, you know, toe in that water is that entrepreneurship is never linear. It's like peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys. Sometimes you'll do really, really well and knock it out of the park. And sometimes you're going to be, you know, in the valley which to me, again, sounds a lot like that artistic process. Sometimes you nail it, and sometimes you're like, yeah, actually not there yet. We need to maybe hang back for a couple of weeks, maybe even a few years, and come back to it and see if the perspective has changed enough for you to make something beautiful out of something you originally didn't like as much. Talk a little bit about the waves, the peaks and valleys of being an artist, particularly a freelance artist who works largely on commission. Yeah, so one of the 
one of the benefits of having the design background was that I could always fall back mm. on the graphic design and art direction profession because I didn't want to have to rely on having to create paintings. I also realized that I was all of my painting commissions were kind of coming from one group. So I was I knew that was pretty lucky to have that. So that what that was a consistent peak for me. It wasn't the valleys did kind of come in you know, after 2007, 8, and 9. After you know, the, the, the Great Recession. Yeah, the, yeah. That was a valley for the, pretty much everybody. Yeah, <laughs> it, it trickled down pretty good. The last thing people were buying and or hiring were freelance designers and artwork certainly was, was suffering. That was the first one. Then ended up picking back up from there, but th- there was a lot of, it still is. I'm kind of going on a peak now, but there was definitely a roller coaster roller coaster rides of up and down. What do you tell yourself when you're in a valley? And and I'm saying this mostly because, you know, whether people who are listening are artists or entrepreneurs or even at their corporate job and just going through a tough time, what did you tell yourself to get through the valley to continue to believe that there would be a peak on the other end of it? Yeah, good question. I'm not sure. <laughs> I just re- kept on reaching out to the people that were hiring me, you know, letting them know, hey, if you got anything, you know, I'm open, I'm available. I was making stuff, so I was, I was, I was skating by. I found making stuff. That was, that was before, that was right when even Facebook was starting to peak its head. There was no Instagram. So I started doing live videos of painting with Facebook, and those were becoming kind of becoming popular. Uh, they're harder for me to do now just because of DMCs and all of that. You get taken down quite often because I, don't, I can't speak to a chat room. Mm-hmm. I can keep my eye while I'm painting. But that was one thing that, that helped and kept me creating for sure because I would see that there was, a, there was a room full of a couple hundred people hanging out and just saying hi. But, yeah, I don't, I don't recall telling myself anything other than I got to wake up tomorrow and figure something out. And so it so, sounds like it was action. Like yeah. just continuing to go through the process of creating and, you know, leveraging even technology in your situation, whether it's Facebook and other social media platforms. Yeah, and that was in regards to painting. I still, I still had uh, freelance jobs coming in. They just weren't coming in. At the rate uh, that, yeah. yeah. They weren't coming in at the rate I was used to, that's mm-hmm. for sure. So, yeah, there was a couple, yeah, there's a lot of scary moments for sure. Artists are by no means immune to hustle culture. In my own journey, despite stepping away from big law life, I found that I still have trouble shedding the mentality that lent itself to collecting as many billable hours as I could throughout the year. Every .1 hour I spent running, watching TV, having coffee with a non-client or non-potential client, these were .1 hours I interrogated by instinct. Am I just wasting revenue generation time? And that habit of interrogation, it didn't evaporate when I became a writer and a podcaster. I wanted to ask David how he grapples with that kind of pressure, if he does at all, and how he continues to show up for his clients, his art, and himself. 
Earlier, you had talked about how even one piece that's commissioned by a client can take you know, anywhere from two to three months. And I know that sometimes you spend 10 to 12 hours in this studio just painting and painting and painting. And yet what I find so remarkable is that you actually still have time <laughs> to get plenty of sleep. This I know. <laughs> you run marathons, you cook, you are an avid cyclist, you go to the gym. How do you find time to incorporate some of these other aspects of your life into what some might imagine as an incredibly immersive process as an artist? Yeah, another good question, because I would say 15 years ago, I was kind of on this sleep three hours here, work three hours, work sleep three hours there kind of thing. It actually wasn't until later on where probably when I started running, where that and for my clients, that, that actually wasn't going to, to work out. It wasn't working out for me. So it just kind of naturally progressed. It worked then for some reason. It was just like I would get some sleep whenever. You're I'm younger. I would, yeah, I would, yeah, that's pro- probably a big part of it. I was younger and I was like, okay, I just did a f- few hours here, fired off that email. I'll go to the gym. I'm going to come home, eat. Then I'm going to sleep another three hours and I'll wake up. And maybe I'll pull a six-hour session, then I'll sleep three hours. It was kind of like whenever I was tired. That doesn't work anymore now. That was kind of a natural transition part. Part of that is certainly age. But I think my exercise, even beyond cycling, I think running got really amped. It was getting a lot more serious because I was doing running and weights. And and then after the marathon, I was like, okay, I want to run that better. And every year, my schedule would just kind of change. And so what it had become now is just the whether it's running cycling or weights sometimes it's a combination of the both has to be done in the morning certainly running or cycling for me almost always has to be done in the morning not that i can't deviate from that i have but for the most part on a consistent schedule early morning that's it then get home and work depending on what the I would eat first, but depending on what the schedule or deadline is, if there's, if there's no hardcore deadline, I pull anywhere from four to nine hours. It just depends on, you know, if I did a smaller canvas and I got one full layer on and it only took me three hours, I might call it a day there, then check emails and maybe do a little social media. But in terms of like these bigger pieces, such as the flag, you know, it's 10 and a half feet, just getting some paint on there is eight or nine hours before I even really start adding my personality to it. So, but I want it, I want that to be done because if I know I go home, that, that I, I did over the, I crossed over into two, two days, two full days, because I realized one day I wasn't going to happen. I don't pull all-nighters anymore. That doesn't work for me. I try to be done with everything between 8.30 and 9.30, and then, then I still have maybe an hour to do whatever entertainment purposes lately as of late it's maybe watching an hour whatever show with my mother and then then it's in bed you know 10 10 30 11 would be late considered late then up early so 
that early is anywhere from, you know, 5.30 to 7.30. That's To make sure you work out, get your run in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I had to jump in here because I'm going through something pretty interesting right now that really relates to this point about how running can require you to take care of your body in a way you might not otherwise do. So I just injured myself a few days ago, and I haven't been able to run at all or really do much physical activity beyond limping around the house. What I found is that when I'm off my fitness routine, I tend to get off many of the other healthy habits I've employed to facilitate my running, like sleeping much later than normal or eating two more servings of ice cream than normal. Now, I'm a big believer in doing those things that allow your body to recover from long bouts of disciplined, regimented challenges and thus indulging in ice cream parties every once in a while. But I do think it's consistent with David's experience, which is that when we pick up running or some other fitness activity, you become more motivated to prioritize your body and thus yourself, even at the cost of those hustle culture hours. What you just described sounds to me super regimented. And even if you look around here in your studio, I know I remarked how everything is at a 90 degree angle in the studio. And I feel like you are a walking refutation of this stereotype that artists are messy and disorganized and undisciplined and kind of fly by the seat of your pants. I feel like you're one of the most disciplined, most organized, most neat and germaphobic (laughs) artists I've ever met in my life. But What I love about what you have said a couple of times during our chat is that your artwork is what reveals your personality. The process by which you inject your personality into your artwork, and I definitely see a great deal of precision in a lot of your artwork, but what I also see is something that you described while you were showing us some of the work here in your studio, which is this you know, harmonious destruction or harmonious chaos. You've often talked about the the destruction that you add to your artwork. Can you describe what you mean by that? And then can you also describe, well, what part of your personality are you revealing through that process? Well, let me first address, I do like to get messy and you, you kind of have to mm-hmm. as a painter. You came in here and I have all the drop cloths rolled up, but when they're down, things do get messy. Now, when it comes to the OCD or my organization, <laughs> I would attribute that probably through the visual communication design program, Mm. which was very, very regimented about, they would have these acetate overlays and your pen marks, if you were making a square and if you had to cut an acetate piece, if, if you went over, you were already knocked down a grade. It had to be perfect with these rapidiograph pens. It was very, if it was wrong, and that program was a weed-out program. So, ah. it, yeah, you had to be very pre- precise. If you didn't have the B, you didn't move on to the next level. In fact, I think we started out with a couple hundred people, and our graduating class was 12. Holy cow! Yeah, the, the, yeah BFA master's people, would ended up being 12. There might be some fluctuation based on somebody who graduated five years or even six years. Some master's students would stay on. Now, that's where that comes from. Yeah, I do like to, I call it, yeah, there's a bit of destruction, right? I, I put these huge layers of paint on. They're not necessarily thick. Sometimes they are, but they're usually multiple thin layers. And then I like to break them apart with other chemicals. There's these chemicals that kind of hate each other. 
some work well with each other. I could make them work well, but I, I, I like to just break them apart and let them do some of the heavy lifting because that starts to create an unknown part. And then I need to react to that. And so, and I like the, the finished outcome. You know, when we went back, we were talking about, you know, when we, I look at the beauty of the architecture of, of, of Rome, any of those places where there's, from a distance, you're looking at these ripped up kind of buildings, but from a distance, you see this beautiful color and they're just kind of, they're, they're old and they're, they're kind of destroyed, but they're still beautiful in a way. And I, I, I mentioned, I, I like the way ivy grows on some of these buildings. That is another layer. That's kind of how I look at a lot of my paintings, for sure. I like to put big layers on, break them up, then react to them. And I am, I'm destroying it because I'm not taking, I'm not just taking that paintbrush like a da Vinci would. By the way, his work is incredible. Uh, <laughs> not to, just, not to shade da Vinci. It's just, it's just, yeah, no, I'm not throwing any shade. In fact, it's, it's brilliant the way he creates colors and all that. It's all with, with brush strokes. I'm just a little differently. I like to create those same harmonious colors you know, destroying the paint, kind of let it run into each other and see what happens. And then if I don't like that, then I have to react to it and then maybe turn the canvas flat, let the paint stop running or turn it back upside down, let it run the opposite way. Then they start to marry each other. And then I'm able to, to view that, right? I'm able to just kind of see what's happening. And then like and you that, said, react to then it. Then I have to react to it and, and make what I want it to do. Mm. So I let it do what it's going to do. And then... And then, I, then I'm going to do what I want to do. It sounds like a romantic relationship. Or <laughs> <laughs> like a conversation. What do you have to say? Well, this is what I have to say. <laughs> what is that? A romantic relationship? <laughs> it can be. <laughs> I think some of your most moving and certainly most powerful pieces are portraits. We have a portrait of my Rudy and my home and it, you know, not a day goes by when I walk past and I don't feel like crying because I, I can see his personality leaping right off the page. It's, it's pretty remarkable. You have a lot of portraits just sitting here. You know, I'm looking at one of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm looking at one of your father. It yeah. seems to be when he was in his maybe late 20s or early 30s. There's one of George Floyd in your kitchen. What are you trying to say, if at all, with these portraits, these sort of in-your-face faces that are peeking out at you every single day you're sitting here in the studio? A lot of those were practice, just to stay practicing to illustrate. Now, I picked those characters, those people, for certain reasons, because, you know, they moved me at a, at a certain, certain time. But there's still something I like to do with pen and ink that still feels a little raw on the outside. Mm -hmm. I like to see some of the pencil marks, and I just like to see if I can capture... You know, it's always kind of in, in the eyes, except for in Buster Rhymes' case, it might be the, the lips and or the hair. But I just like to see if I can capture the, the essence of who that person is on paper. Now, not all of those were, were freehanded, and some of them are from, from direct images, but I'm totally fine with that, because when I look at that photograph that I took the George Floyd pen and ink from, when I see that it's hand-done, it just takes on a different meaning for me. And the same would go for Ruth Bader Ginsburg and all of them. That's the reason why sometimes I do, I do a lot of the stuff from somebody else's picture. It's because when I see it done by hand, 
it just takes on, and you can see brush strokes, you can just see the movement, somebody making a decision with a pencil. And then there's that person that they, that they made the portrait of is moving all, all together mm, all at once. Mm. Um, there's that phrase, that very popular phrase, a picture paints a thousand words. Do you ever feel like some of your artwork says things that you can't say with words or that you can't say out loud? Yes. And that's why I'll say no more. You know what it is, is I don't, I don't try, I try not to define any of my pieces, especially the abstract ones. I mean, they're just kind of, uh, I, it's what it means to the viewer. They may simply just like red. When they see how I might paint red, they may like it even more and they can't really describe why. Some of them, they may see it takes on like a, like I do these red abstracts where there's just pops of color. People see different things. Some people see a lot of Asian influence in those and that's fine. I'm not going to tell them any different whether or not that's what inspired me. That's on, on the paintings that aren't necessarily referential. The abstract ones, that's what's cool about it. I think that's really important because I think there are some people who, you know, when they create something, they feel like they have to control how it's also received. So, you know, I'm a poet by background. I, I write a lot of poetry and I would say 90% of my poetry is incredibly abstract. Anthony's always saying, I don't know what the fuck you're saying in your poems. And yeah. a lot of people have made that comment about my poems. I'm like, that's okay. You don't need to know what I meant when I wrote this. I'm much more interested in how you receive it. How does it make you feel? What does it make you think about? Because I really can't control that aspect of it. I can always control what went into it, like what I put into this particular phrase or this metaphor or this simile or this image here. But at the end of the day, there's no way I can control how it's read, interpreted, or received. But there are some people who feel like they have to really contain the way that a piece of artwork is received by the viewers. I'm hearing from you that maybe part of the joy of you creating artwork, you know, you're talking about that bustling restaurant where people are just enjoying their food while your beautiful artwork is sort of there overlooking all of it, is the fact that you have no control over that. Yeah, that is all fine if, if there is a story. If there's a story to be told, I'm all, all for it. But then there's still that person's still going to interpret it. In, in fact, I think one of my, certainly early on and now, there's a, there's a famous painter, American painter, Andrew Wyeth. I, th I think the title of the piece is Christina's World, but what makes that? And there's this woman kind of crawling towards the house and she has her legs. But what was great about that piece was that woman was always in a wheelchair from what I understand, mm. right? So he painted this piece where she's not. And that's great, that's end of story. And then whatever else you take, away from that piece, which is just an absolutely beautiful piece. That's awesome. Yes, I don't like to say too much, certainly, about the abstract ones. I remember early on, even in college, because I was such a realist, you know, there was a couple haters that were like, well, why don't you just take the picture? Well, there's a lot that happens when you, even if you're painting realism, even on the finished piece, even certainly the watercolor of my father in his military uniform, it does look exactly like the photo. Well, it looks better than the photo, quite frankly. <laughs> uh, and I love looking at it. But the, the thing for me was when I was painting it, why, what was I thinking about of my dad? What uh, were you thinking about? That's 
a lot of things, <laughs> a lot of things, because that piece took a long time. And I was also also thinking about how realistic can I make it just to show off kind of mm. thing, because that was that was college. But that's but that shouldn't make you not make art. I mean, people look at that and they're like, oh, that's a that, is that a photograph? No, that's a that's a painting. That's an illustration. Wow, that's that's awesome. So it's that process. It's, yeah, it's just yeah, I lo- I love it. Mm-hmm. And even if I were to free freehand draw it, I would I, I which is cool too because it'd be a lot more organic, which I do often as well. I haven't done one of that particular piece, but a lot of you t- will. <laughs> a lot of times I do. The, the Buster Rhymes was straight up organic. Mm-hmm. I just take a pen. Uh, the CD was right in front of me. How fast can I see if I can convey this? And sometimes when they don't look exactly like them, they still do. I like that even more. So I have to ask you just to like to kind of close this out. These are probably silly questions that many people have asked you, but is there an artist, dead or alive, who continues to inspire you? Continues to inspire me? That's a very good question because I don't follow. I would say one that was kind of very influ- somebody that I was certainly influenced by would be Jasper Johns. I haven't been following his work that much lately. I've been taking a lot of what I see from certainly well-known artists and, and then marrying them together. So, you know, Jasper Johns would take a lot of these objects, similar ones that I have in here, and he would also do a lot of printmaking. He would also do a lot of encaustic and newspaper clippings on the background and paint over top of them. And I found the graphic side of, of his artwork something that totally was relatable to me. Certainly, there's, there's a lot of things about Andy Warhol that I, I relate to. Current artists living, I, none that I can name off the top of my head, but I could also name a ton of early on graphic designers like Ivan Shermayoff, uh, Paul Rand, Iko Tanaka, Milton Glaser because he would do straight-up graphic design stuff, uh, logos to type animation for movies. So I was always into all of that. All of, those, all of those graphic artists did a lot of their work by hand. Mm, that's incredible. And I think that's what I liked the most. It's like the Ella Fitzgeralds who, you know, didn't have the... <laughs> Everything was yeah. done by hand. Yeah. So mm-hmm. even if you looked at it as graphic art or fine art, it was always fine art to me if it, mm. was, if it touched the hand. And even if it was a precise thing of color blocks over color blocks, that's how they created their graphics, actually, cutting, you know, shapes out of paper, putting them places, and then drawing on top of it, and then maybe use the computer. That's kind of what I take across from graphic design to graphic art to the fine art side to all the printmaking kind of things. I like to use them all together. Yeah. As we get close to the conclusion of our chat, I wanted to ask David for advice. Thinking very much of the 18-year-old Joanne who was told that being a music major simply wasn't safe enough. David's advice is, as you probably could guess, pretty direct and to the point, but ultimately turns into a dialectic on what it truly means to be an artist. What do you have to say to a person, young or old, who maybe has been told that they shouldn't be an artist, 
that art is a dying medium or that it's just too risky, or even if they haven't been told any of those things, simply have lacked the gumption to start, which as we talked about at the very beginning can sometimes be the hardest thing. Yeah. Do you want to be an artist? Be... <laughs> That's a really good question. <laughs> I mean, it's like, is this something you've you've been trying to do and you're you're not succeeding? And then what does what does success mean in your mind? What does success mean to well, you? I, I, that's a great question because I that's a little. I, I think that's it, it could be. It's a little ambiguous because there's there could be financial success. There could be there is no money, but you just made this piece and you feel in a great accomplishment that that is success. You would feel even if you have no money, or but that might give you motivation to try and sell it if you if you think it's good and you're looking and following at other people and you're like, wow. I made this. I think it's pretty good. Mm. Then, well, you have to test it on your family. (laughs) (laughs) You got to start there. But certainly if somebody looking to do something is like, is this what you like doing kind of thing? And then, you know, how often, how serious are are you about wanting to do it? Do you think you could be a good artist if you didn't like it? I think I could be a very good craftsman but maybe not an artist. And the artist part, I think I'm still working on. Mm. I think that part just kind of lives with you. It's no real, I, I just- It's no it, finish line? No, no, but, but craftsmanship, however, is something that can be worked on uh, in my mind. Mm. I could look at something and tell the way it was made, was made with care, or was made with smarts, was made with education of some sorts, was made with maybe reference to something else, or it was poorly made, but it could still be poorly made and I might like what they made. Mm. But if I don't know, like what they made and it was poorly made, then there's a problem. Because <laughs> yeah. I think craftsmanship is a big part of things. When I make the canvases, before there's any paint on them, if you flip them, look at the back, they're well made. They are very, very well made. Same, even a graphic, you could talk about a file in graphic design. How clean is that file? It's like people who code websites. How clean is your code? Steve Jobs said, did you paint the, you need to paint the back of the fence kind of thing. That famous quote, it's craftsmanship, uh, which is, was kind of probably why I went, started out with realism. And that's where I honed in my craftsmanship. It wasn't until later that I started to explore being an artist. An artist. And that's going to live with me for the rest of my life. Mm. Well, I think that was the perfect way to end this podcast. Thank you so much for letting us hang out in your studio. My and, pleasure. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, this conversation was riveting. <laughs> I have so many more oh, questions. Great. But we got to go eat some really good vegan food. Yeah, I'm so, ex- so excited. <laughs> I, know. I can't so wait. Hungry. Riveting is pretty accurate. I was glued to my stool and could have asked David another hour's worth of questions. Going back to what I mentioned in the very beginning, how much of what you want to say do you save for your art? And by art, I don't necessarily mean a 21-foot mural. It could be the food you make for your family, the clothes you pick out for work, or even the run you go on each morning. As David describes, the bar is so much higher when judging craftsmanship, but there can be something that's a little more inclusive about art, a mode of expressing the inexpressible. 
Now, one thing I can express is my gratitude for you all listening or watching this week's episode. If you are tuning in via audio, just a reminder again to check out the YouTube video so you can see David's beautiful work. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe if you haven't already, leave a comment and a rating below, and share this episode with your friends, your family, your colleagues on social media, or with anyone else you think might be inspired by David's story. Otherwise, until next week, I wish you a lovely and wonderful day.